Please open your Bibles to James chapter 5. Our passage for this week is James 5, 13 to 18. Once again, that's James 5, 13 through James 5, 18. Do you know what it's like to have a guilty conscience? Of course you do, right? We've all experienced a guilty conscience at one time or another. But I wonder, do you know what it's really like to suffer? And I mean really suffer from a guilty conscience. In his classic story, The Telltale Heart, author Edgar Allan Poe presents perhaps the most vivid and haunting depiction of what it feels like to truly suffer from a guilty conscience as I think has ever been created. If you're not familiar with the story, it goes like this. A man who narrates the story and whose name we never learn, he's driven to madness by the eye of an old man staying at his house. It's described as an eye like that of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Again, this eye drives the narrator to madness, and so he conspires to kill the old man and to rid himself of the evil eye. Throughout most of the story, the narrator is trying to convince the reader that he really isn't mad, that he's actually too clever to be mad. He recalls, for instance, how in the week before this murder, he would stalk to the old man's room at midnight and ever so slowly open the door and poke his head into the room and shine the light of the lantern on the pale blue eye as the old man slept. He was very careful in his his planning, you see. He was so careful in opening the door and he would move his head through the doorway so slowly that it would take him a full hour before he could get his whole head through the opening to gaze upon the eye. Clearly that degree of caution for seven nights in a row, no less, clearly that is not the action of a madman, right? He was far too careful, far too clever to be mad, he explains. Again, this goes on for seven nights, and then on the eighth night something happens. The old man sits up. The narrator accidentally bumps against his lantern. He makes a sound. The old man wakes up, shoots up into his bed straight as an arrow, and calls out who's there. For more than an hour, the two stay this way. The old man sitting up, listening in the darkness. The narrator standing there, motionless and unseen in the dark. Eventually, the narrator opens the lantern to check on the old man. And a dim sliver of light immediately falls upon the man's pale blue eye. It's wide open. He's still awake, but he doesn't make a sound. Instead, the narrator begins to hear a low, dull, quick sound, what he describes as a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. It's the beating of the old man's heart, and it's getting louder and louder. Eventually, it gets so loud that the narrator fears that the neighbors will hear it. Anxiety finally seizes him, and with a yell, he leaps upon the old man. The old man lets out a short shriek, but he's quickly silenced beneath his own mattress. The narrator smothers him, kills him, and hides his body under the floorboards of his room. In the aftermath, he's very careful to erase every trace of evidence of the crime. The next morning, however, the police show up. A neighbor heard a cry during the night and filed a report. They have been sent to investigate. By this point, the narrator is so confident he's committed the perfect crime that he not only invites the policemen in, but he asks them to sit down and have a chat over the very spot where he hid the body. At first, it all goes well. But then something starts to happen to the narrator. 
Poe describes the scene as follows. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears, but still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definitiveness until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I rose and argued about trifles in a high key and with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I sat and grated it upon the boards, but the noise over all and continually increased. It grew louder, louder, louder. And still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no, no, they heard. This I thought and this I think, but anything better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now, again, hark louder, 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 louder. Villains, I shrieked. Dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here. It is the beating of this hideous heart. Thus ends the story of the telltale heart. And if ever there was a greater depiction of what it feels like to suffer from a guilty conscience, I'm sure I don't know what it is. Our text for this morning is James 5, 13 to 18. Let's go ahead and begin by reading this passage together. James 5, 13 to 18. James writes this. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. It's normal in the course of one's study of the Scripture to want to blend the various and assorted theological statements that we find scattered across the pages of the Bible into a single harmonious doctrinal belief. Uh, This is only natural. After all, there's only one divine author at work in the inspiration of the 66 books in Scripture. This is a being that we know is entirely perfect in His being, in His essence, who is completely without error. And so we would expect that when we come to this book that we're 
only going to hear one consistent message. When we come across Moses, for instance, and he says, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And then we come across Jesus who says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my own disciple in Luke 14. When we hear those two passages, we don't assume that Moses simply had one opinion about how we should treat our parents and Jesus another. We don't assume they simply disagree. No, we assume that there must be some way that both those statements are true at the same time because even though they were said by different people, there was still one divine author behind both statements. And so he must somehow intend for both of them to be true at the same time. This leads us to want to harmonize these statements into a single doctrinal belief, a a coherent understanding or conviction that describes what the Bible says about honoring your father and mother, for instance. This is what theologians call the the practice of systematic theology. Systematic theology, in the words of systematic theologian Wayne Grudem, is, quote, any study that answers the question, what does the whole Bible teach us today about any given topic? We are all, therefore, systematic theologians, because like it or not, we all do this. Not all of us do this very well, but we all do this. We take one passage of Scripture and we compare it with other passages of Scripture and combine the teachings of those passages to form a consistent and coherent idea of what the entire Bible says on that subject, a consistent and coherent doctrine. Of course, the the challenge in systematic theology is twofold. First of all, this is a big book. Many of the topics that we study in Scripture have literally tens and even hundreds of passages that apply to them. And it's very hard to keep all those passages in mind when you're studying a topic. In fact, quite often we don't even know all the passages that may apply. We're not aware of them all, meaning quite often we're working with an incomplete set of data. And then second, several of these passages, such as the two I just mentioned, seem to want to contradict each other. In other words, the Bible doesn't just say the exact same thing about every topic every time it comes up. No, it addresses the topic from different angles. The doctrines we encounter are are much like diamonds. They have a number of different facets which each refract the light of God's truth from different angles. This certainly adds depth to God's Word, no doubt, but it also means that we often have to work to understand how these different ideas fit together. It's sort of like we're dealing with a big puzzle. We have all these different pieces scattered throughout the pages of Scripture, and they all fit together to form one giant picture that describes our topic, but we still have to figure out the right combination of pieces that allows them to all connect. You take these two ideas together, and what it means is that sometimes you're bound to come across passages that force you to reconsider the system of pieces you've assembled. It's like when you get through a puzzle and then there's one piece still missing. Or better yet, it's like when you get done assembling, say, a table that you bought at the store. And you think that it's all going great until you're all done and there's like eight screws left over. It's always a little worrisome, isn't it? You tell yourself, oh, those are are just extra pieces that were thrown in in case I made a mistake. But in the back of your mind, you're still wondering, did I miss something? 
Did I assemble that table in the right way? Do those actually belong somewhere? It's the same way with the Scripture. We develop a system that we think explains what the Scripture teaches on the subject. But then once our table is assembled, we start coming across spare passages, and we're left wondering, wait, did I put that together right? Do these go somewhere? Today's passage can be one of those types of passages. Today's passage, if you can't already tell, is really about two different subjects. And that's prayer and healing. Verse 16, the key verse in this passage says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. These are the two different themes that carry throughout this passage, prayer and healing. And so if we were to attempt to catalog this text with other topics that we're studying in Scripture, we'd probably assign it under at least these two separate headings. We'd group it with all the passages that have something to say about prayer, and we'd also group it along with all the passages that have something to say about healing. Now, what this should already show us is that part of the challenge of systematic theology is that the topics we attempt to define and study are never completely isolated. Here we have a passage that's about prayer, and yet it's also about healing. There's apparently some kind of relationship between prayer and healing. And so it's not just as simple as harmonizing all the passages in Scripture that have something to do with prayer with one another. No, we also have to make sure that at the final conclusion, the final conclusion about what we think the Bible says about prayer also meshes with all the different passages in Scripture that have to say something about healing because there's apparently some type of overlap between these two subjects. We see it here. Both prayer and healing come up in the same passage. They're somehow related. So what we believe about prayer and what we believe about healing need to more or less agree with one another. And this is where this passage starts to become sort of challenging. There are all sorts of relationships that we can imagine when we try to understand the connection between prayer and healing. We could come to the conclusion that prayer leads to healing all of the time, or only some of the time, or perhaps even none of the time. If we say that it's only some of the time, then we have all kinds of conditions that we could attach to prayer to say it only produces healing in these scenarios. These conditions could be arranged around the type of sickness or by who is doing the praying or how the prayer is said or by what produced the sickness in the first place. We could also try to define the kind of healing it produces. We could say it refers to a physical healing. Of course, that's the most natural tendency when we come to passages like this. But we could also try to say it leads rather to a spiritual healing. There are all kinds of ways that we could try to harmonize the Scripture's teaching on prayer with its teaching on healing. The challenge that we come to here is that, at first blush, this passage, of course, seems to refer to physical healing. It seems to be implying that if we pray for the sick, they will be healed. Verses 14 to 15, it says, If any, is anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. That seems fairly straightforward, doesn't it? We would all read sick and assume that James means simply sick, as in they are laid out in bed physically ill. 
That seems to be the implication in verse 14. The sick person is calling for the elders of the church. The elders are praying over him, and the Lord raises him up in verse 15. That certainly seems to indicate that this is someone who is laid out in bed, physically ill, who is then restored to physical health through the prayers of the elders. Again, this all seems rather simple. So what's the problem, right? What's so complicated about what James is doing here? Well, the problem is simply this. Have you ever prayed for someone who is sick and they've not gotten well? Of course you have, right? Maybe you had a friend who was struggling with cancer, or maybe you had a grandmother or grandfather who was sick and in the hospital and about to die, and you prayed for them and they didn't get better. They died. Maybe it wasn't even as serious as that. Maybe your loved one simply had an injury or disease that diminished their quality of life. Maybe they suffer from chronic arthritis, for instance. I have a friend of mine, and his mom has suffered from an acute case of, of uh, chronic arthritis for years, ever since I was a child. And, and over the years, it's only gotten worse. She's often in a terrible amount of pain. Maybe it was something like that. Maybe they were paralyzed, for instance, and you prayed for them, and they didn't get better. They remained paralyzed. If so, then what do you do about this passage, which seems to simply say, if anyone among you is sick, then pray for them, and they'll be healed. Can you start to see where I'm going here? See, when we come across passages like this, we don't just place them within the framework of other Scripture passages, but within the framework of our experience very often as well. And if the passages don't match up with our experience, we go back to the text to see if we made the right interpretation. Of course, if we did make the right interpretation, then the text still stands, since we know that the Scripture is entirely without error. But if there is legitimate room for an alternate interpretation, then it very well may be that the reason our experience doesn't match up with our interpretation is because our original interpretation was wrong. I think you see this principle at work in the doctrinal position known as cessationism. If you don't know what that term cessationism means, it's the position that says that the miraculous sign gifts that we saw at work very early in the life of the church, most specifically in the book of Acts, has ended or ceased, hence the name cessationism. That's my position. I'm a cessationist. I don't think those sign gifts are in effect today. And if I'm completely honest with you, part of the reason why I hold that position is because in my experience, these types of sign gifts don't seem operable in the church. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that miracles can't or even don't happen. That's one thing that's often confused about cessationism. People think we just don't believe in the supernatural or something, and that's not true. I just don't believe the gifts of miracles or healings or prophecy are still in effect today. Reason being, I think the scripture implies that the ones who have those gifts are essentially able to exercise them on command. And I have yet to encounter a single Christian who's able to do that. Now, that's not the only reason, of course, because, again, the Scripture is true regardless of my experience. And if I believe the Scripture still taught the continuation of the sign gifts, then I'd be forced to accept their continued presence in the church regardless of my experience. I'd I'd have to go back to the puzzle and try to figure out how they can exist in spite of the fact that I haven't encountered them. Who knows, maybe that would even lead me to conclude that something is wrong with the church today, or perhaps there's something we need to repent of since we should have them and they're not in operation. As it is, though, when I take my experience and check it against the Scripture, what I find is that there are plenty of passages that seem to indicate that the sign gifts are no longer in effect today. I'm not going going to go into great detail defending why I think that position this morning, because that's not really our purpose here today. 
But suffice to say, I think the New Testament ends up confirming my experience. It indicates that we ought not to expect those types of gifts to be operable in the church today. So then, coming back to this morning's passage. This passage seems to indicate that prayer does produce healing, and yet our experience teaches us that this isn't always true. So what do we do? How do we interpret this passage? Well, I'll tell you one thing I think we can do right away, and that's eliminate the possibility that James is only referring to a kind of spiritual healing here. We can eliminate that possibility. That's one route we could take. We could solve this apparent contradiction between text and experience by saying, well, James isn't referring to any kind of physical healing here. He's speaking of a spiritual healing. After all, there's talk in this passage of confession of sin and forgiveness, so maybe the word for sick here is referring to a kind of spiritual sickness. Upon further examination, there seems to be be at least some merit to this position. Now, the Greek word for sick here, astheneo, it means simply to be weak, and it can at times refer to a kind of spiritual weakness. Uh, For instance, when Paul refers to the weaker brother in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14, the word he uses there for weaker is this word, astheneo. However, at the end of the day, this interpretation simply stretches the plain reading of the text too far. For instance, we could counter this observation about the use of astheneo by pointing out that the term for healed in verse 16 is overwhelmingly used with respect to physical healing in the New Testament. You add that to the fact that James tells the sick person to call for the elders of the church. It doesn't say that he should go to them, but that they should come to him, and that after they pray over him, the Lord will raise him up, and the picture seems rather clear. The individual in question here is bedridden. They're physically sick. In fact, James can't be referring to a merely spiritual kind of sickness, since in verse 15 he says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. The implication is that clearly this healing is in some way contingent upon whether or not sins have been committed. You see that? It says if he has committed sins. That contingency just doesn't make sense here if the healing in question is related to spiritual sickness. Since the whole purpose of the prayer would be to heal spiritual sickness. In other words, there would be no if he has committed sins since that would be assumed from the outset, unless I suppose we're talking about a spiritual sickness that is not related to sin, which I suppose is possible. It's just that by that point we're jumping through a lot of hoops to confirm our theological presuppositions. And just to be clear, this passage most definitely is associating forgiveness with healing, just in case that was in question. Look at verse 16, for instance. And it says that we are to confess and pray for one another... Why? That you may be healed. The healing follows confession and prayer. It comes as a result of confession and prayer. So in verse 15, we're told if we've committed sins, they will be forgiven. And then James says, verse 16, therefore, meaning because this is true, because it's true that if we've committed sins, they'll be forgiven, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
The implication clearly is that this healing is coming as a result of this forgiveness. The man in question is calling the elders. He's confessing his sins to them. They're praying for him, and the result is healing. There's just no other way to read this passage without doing serious injustice to the text. The confession of sin is leading to a forgiveness that produces healing. So why would James then say, if he has committed sins... If the whole purpose of this prayer in the first place is spiritual healing, it just doesn't make sense. It makes far more sense, rather, to assume that another type of healing is in view here, a physical healing that is in some way conditioned upon whether or not sins have been committed. This is quite simply the plain reading of the text. It's just like when we come to Genesis 1. You know, popular science may say that the earth was formed slowly over the course of four and a half billion years, but when we get back to Genesis 1, we simply can't avoid the fact that the Scripture says the earth was formed over the span of six 24-hour periods. That's the plain reading of the text, and no amount of exegetical gymnastics can change that. And so we accept the fact that the Scripture contradicts popular experience or popular interpretation and allow the Scripture to be the authority on the subject, not our experience. It's the same here. It doesn't matter what our experience may tell us. What James quite clearly means here is to say that there is some kind of connection between prayer and physical healing. So then what do we do here? How can James say that prayer leads to healing when our experience tells us that clearly prayer does not always lead to healing? I think there are essentially two possible ways that we can read this passage. First, we can assume an essentially supernatural relationship between prayer and healing. In this case, the reason why the man or the woman in question is sick is because they've sinned against God. And God has elected to discipline them by striking them with some kind of disease. Now, of course, it is true that not all kinds of sickness are a result of sin. I should probably go out of my way to note this up front so there's no confusion about the potential implications of this passage. John 9, right? The man born blind. The disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? That this man or his parents, uh, that he was born blind. And Jesus says it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Guys, sometimes bad things just happen to quote-unquote good people for no other reason than that God wants to glorify himself through their weakness. Job, of course, is a great example of this. So is the Apostle Paul. In fact, the Apostle Paul is really interesting because in 2 Corinthians 12, he refers to this thorn in the flesh, which he refers to as a messenger of Satan. It's not entirely clear what Paul is referring to here, whether it's an actual physical ailment or a person who's attacking his ministry. But if it's referring to some type of physical injury or disease, then that's really interesting because Paul says he asked God to remove this thorn three different times, and God ultimately said no. Why? Because according to God, quote, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's notable because that would tell us that prayer does not always result in healing. And the reason, once again, is because sometimes sickness and suffering actually glorifies God. So no, not all sickness is as a result of sin. Whatever our position is on this passage, we must be very careful to avoid that conclusion. And yet all the same, this isn't the same thing as saying that sickness is never as a result of sin. We actually have plenty of examples in Scripture where God does make someone sick as a result of their sin. 
Miriam, for instance, is struck with leprosy for challenging the authority of Moses in Numbers 12. King Uzziah is likewise struck with leprosy for trying to burn incense before the Lord in 2 Chronicles 26. God makes Nebuchadnezzar go mad for a period of time for his boasting in Daniel 4. We come into the New Testament and Herod is eaten by worms and killed for accepting worship from the crowds in Acts 12. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that some are sick and have even died for the way that they're taking the Lord's table. And this doesn't include those examples where God just struck someone dead immediately on account of their sin. Uzzah, for instance, touches the Ark of the Covenant in 2 Samuel 6 and God strikes him dead immediately. Likewise, Ananias and Sapphira are immediately struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit in Acts 5. So it's not as if there's exactly no precedent for this position. In fact, what's really interesting is that in at least four of the examples I gave you just now, God strikes the person in question with sickness specifically because of their pride. Miriam, Uzziah, Nebuchadnezzar, Herod, they're all struck because of their pride. The same can be said for the Corinthians and Ananias and Sapphira once we consider that God considers hypocrisy and deceit a kind of pride. I think that's really interesting because in context, James has told us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In other words, what we may be dealing with here is a form of divine discipline. In this case, it's probably the rich specifically who've tried to secretly defraud their brothers with their arrogant boasting who are sick. Like Ananias and Sapphira, they have essentially lied to the Holy Spirit by saying that they couldn't pay their brothers when they could. Like the Corinthians, they're still coming to the Lord's table, claiming a common fellowship with their poor brothers, and yet by the way they're acting, they're denying that fellowship. It would seem that the Lord's table was originally celebrated around an actual meal, while in 1 Corinthians 11, the richer brothers are coming with their own food and feasting at this meal, while their poorer brothers are going hungry. Paul says that some of them are sick and have even died for commemorating the table in this way. Well, that's essentially what these rich and James are doing as well. So perhaps what we have here is a form of divine discipline. God has struck these rich with some type of disease in order to rebuke them for their arrogance and pride. Essentially, God is uncovering what they've tried to cover. This would seem to fit the context of what's going to follow next week in James 5, 19-20, where James says that whoever brings a sinner back from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. God is disciplining these brothers, and just like with the Corinthians, He'll do this to the point of death if necessary, if they do not acknowledge their sin and repent. If that's what's meant here, then what's happening is that these rich are calling for the elders of the church, perhaps the very same elders who acquitted them of their sins against their poor brothers, and they're confessing these sins to their elders. The elders are in turn hearing their confession and acknowledging that God forgives their sin. The forgiveness is symbolized with this anointment of oil, which was often a sign of dedication or consecration in the Old Testament. So in effect, the elders are acknowledging that these sinning brothers are are, are saints, are holy ones in God's sight. And as a result of this confession, God is restoring these sinning brothers back to their former state. If this is the case, then the prayer of faith in this instance probably refers to the prayer of the elders or possibly even the prayers of the offended brother. Keep in mind, James tells us that the poor have been essentially calling down condemnation for their brothers because of their sins. Up in verse 4, he even tells us that God has heard their cries. 
Well, here in verse 16, James tells these Christians to, quote, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. That may only refer to the confession made to the elders and the elders praying for the sick brother in response, but it very well may refer to a confession of sin to the one who's been sinned against. And the offended brother demonstrating their forgiveness by in turn praying for their brother's restoration. Like it may be the poor who instead of cursing the rich are now praying for their healing. Either way, whether it's just the elders or both the elders and the poor, the faith in this instance would apparently refer to the faith of the one praying on behalf of the sick brother. This is one way to read this passage. We could say that there is a supernatural relationship between prayer and healing. There's another way that we could read this, however. And that's to assume a more or less natural relationship between prayer and healing. In other words, it could be that the sickness that's going on here is actually a direct result of the sin itself. I tend to think that's an underrated option when considering what's going on here. We often seem to ignore the fact that it's not uncommon for sin to produce a physical effect on the body. That sometimes comes in the form of some type of injury or disease that's inflicted upon the body by external influences, such as when a person drives under the influence of drugs or alcohol and ends up in a car accident that leaves them seriously injured, or such as when a life of sexual promiscuity causes a person to contract a sexually transmitted disease. However, what's often missed is that sin often produces a kind of physiological effect in and of itself. Like if someone struggles with anxiety or anger, then it's more than possible that they're going to end up dealing with things like high blood pressure. That anxiety or anger can be rooted in their idolatry. and the things they desire, it can be rooted in sin. And if they don't deal with it, then under the right circumstances, it could eventually lead to something like a heart attack. You see what I'm getting at here? This, there is a very real and entirely explainable connection between the spiritual condition of a person and their physical health. Like you take me out, I've mentioned this before, but you take me out onto the sky deck at the top of Sears Tower in Chicago and my heart is going to start racing. I'm going to start sweating. My knees will shake. My, my psychological fear of heights is going to produce a physical effect on my body. In other words, what we think can induce physical stress on the body. The scripture actually refers to this relationship in a few different passages, most particularly in Proverbs. For example, Proverbs 17.22 says, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Interestingly enough, considering where we've been in James, Proverbs 16.24 actually speaks about the physical effects of our words. It says, Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. In other words, it's it's not simply that our thinking can induce stress on our body, but we can actually induce that stress on others by leading them to set their minds on the kind of things that produce this type of stress in them. Speaking of the benefit of wisdom in general, a father pleads with his son to hear his words in Proverbs 4.22, saying, For they are life to all who find them, and healing to all their flesh. Again, the Bible would affirm our spiritual health can often produce a physical effect on the body. How would that work here in James? Well, it's rather simple. Psalm 32. David describes the effect of a guilty conscience like this. He says, 
For when I kept my, my uh, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength dried up as by the heat of summer. That may describe the sort of discipline that I refer to with Miriam or with the Corinthians. Far more likely, though, it's describing the effects of a guilty conscience. God's hand is heavy upon David, meaning he's convicting David of his sin, and the result is that David is suffering from extreme anxiety and perhaps even depression. Interestingly enough, right after this, David says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You guys hear that? He uses the same language that James uses over here in chapter 5. He confesses his sin, and he says that God forgave his iniquity. So maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe what, we, what we're seeing transpire in James 5 is something much akin to what happened to the narrator in Poe's Telltale Heart. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues. The wicked flee when no one pursues. You know how that works, right? When you do something wrong, even when you get away with it, you're always checking over your shoulder, always wondering who knows and whether you'll ever be caught. It's just like in the telltale heart. The police are there chatting politely and the narrator thinks it's a game. He thinks they already know that they too can hear the beating of the dead man's heart. That's what it's like to suffer a guilty conscience. You're always on the run, always thinking that every innocent phone call or request for a lunch meeting or something like that is going to end up with your secret being found out. This can produce a terrible effect on the body. And maybe that's what's happening here with the rich. They fooled their brother, they fooled the church tribunal, but they haven't fooled God and they know it. Their riches are the equivalent of the heart beating in the floorboards. Every time they go home and eat their dinner to the full and sleep in their comfortable beds, they're reminded of what they've done to their brother and it's eating them alive. In short, maybe what's happening here is not that God is disciplining them directly, but that they're fearing that discipline. They know He can and will discipline His people and they're so afraid of what's coming that they're physically ill. In this case, the rich are calling the elders to confess their sin. The elders are anointing them with oil once again as a sign of their good standing in Christ, that they're still accepted by God in spite of their sin. And the prayer of faith in this instance would be the faith of the one confessing his sin. They're receiving that word of assurance by faith, and the result is that their anxiety over their sin is thus assuaged. They're no longer suffering the effects of a guilty conscience because they've brought their sin to light. Again, I'd imagine you know how that feels like, don't you? Have you ever confessed a hidden sin that's been weighing on you for some time? It feels like a literal weight has been lifted from your shoulders, does it not? Perhaps that's what James is dealing with. All to say we have nothing to fear in adopting a reading of this passage that allows it to say that prayer can produce physical healing. And quite honestly, I feel silly even saying that. I mean, we pray for healing all the time, don't we? Why wouldn't we think that prayer can produce healing? You may even be sitting here wondering why it would take so much time to establish such a simple point. And yet, I would still venture that for at least some of you, this passage makes you nervous. I know it's made me nervous before. You read this statement in verse 15 where it says that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up, and you start to squirm. 
Part of that has to do with the abuses that are done to passages like this, no doubt. We've all seen the TV faith healers who want to say that any injury and illness can be healed with a sufficient amount of faith, and they'll use this to guilt the sick and the suffering out of their money. We clearly want to avoid those types of abuses. Part of the hesitation has something to do with the apparently unqualified terms of this promise as well. James just seems to say, if you pray, God will heal you. And there have been many times when you've prayed and that's not happened. And we want to protect the integrity of God's Word from those unanswered prayers. And so we try to say, well, James doesn't really mean what he says here. Prayer isn't magic. Listen, it doesn't have to be magic. We just have to read the passage in its context. And when we do that, what we discover is that James limits the implications of this passage plenty on its own. James isn't attempting to say, listen closely here, James isn't attempting to say that every disease and affliction will be healed so long as a person has a sufficient amount of faith. He's simply saying that those diseases and afflictions that have come specifically as a result of some type of sin can be healed when those sins are acknowledged and confessed to God. So we don't need to try to bend this passage and make it say something it doesn't just so we can avoid one of these erroneous conclusions about prayer. We just need to let it say what it says and allow it to take care of those abuses on its own. So then, what does it say? Which of these two options I just mentioned are the right one? Is the right one. All we assume an essentially supernatural relationship between prayer and healing. Is this sickness coming because God is actively disciplining those who are sick? Or is the relationship more natural than that? Is the sickness an intrinsic result of the person's sin? I know what you're probably thinking. I would think if you're you know, paying attention to the outline today. I introduced the sermon today with the story of the telltale heart. I began by illustrating the effects of the guilty conscience. And so you probably think that I'm going to say that I prefer the second option that the sickness here is a direct result of the sin itself and that the healing that comes here is more or less the result of the power of positive thinking. That's what's being described here, the psychosomatic effects of sin. But as tempting as that conclusion is, I have to say, I don't think that's what this passage is saying. I think the first option is the better answer here. What we're seeing here is a direct form of divine discipline, which is removed through the confession of sin in prayer. And I say that for a couple of reasons. First off, it's the answer that best fits the context of what we've seen so far. James said back in chapter 4 that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Well, this would certainly be one way for God to do that, by physically afflicting those who have made these arrogant boasts about the future. That response would also be consistent with what we find throughout the rest of the Scripture. God seems to strike the proud specifically with physical affliction in order to humble them. Even more than this, the type of sin going on here is almost exactly like what we see over in 1 Corinthians 11. So both the near and the far context would merit this conclusion, but even more significantly, I think we have to read verse 15 this way. I keep drawing attention to this phrase, the prayer of faith in verse 15. That's because I think that's one of the key components of this whole verse. Whose faith is it that saves the one who is sick? Is it the prayer of the sick man? Or is it the prayer of those interceding for him? Everything in the context seems to say that it's the prayers of those interceding for him. He's obviously calling for the elders to pray over him in verse 14. Verse 16, James says to pray for, quote, one another, meaning they're, 
This isn't just praying for ourselves, for our own forgiveness. Then, end of verse 16, James emphasizes his point by saying the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. And he illustrates this point by pointing to this instance where Elijah prays for rain. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with that account, but it refers to an incident where God disciplined Israel for their idolatry under King Ahab. And what's notable is that when Elijah prays for God to send rain, he doesn't do it as a response to Israel's repentance. Actually, King Ahab is still unrepentant at the time Elijah prays for rain. In fact, the reason why Elijah prays for rain is to demonstrate the superiority of the Lord over the prophets of Baal. In other words, the rain that God sends in that instance has absolutely nothing to do with Israel's spiritual condition as is instead entirely a result of Elijah's intercession. So I don't think we can assume that the prayer of faith is simply the prayer of a guilty conscience taking hope in the assurance of salvation. No, it's a prayer by one Christian for another which is bringing about the sick Christian's healing. And the only way I can explain that is if God is somehow directly involved in that sickness. Like it's coming from Him, and it's only after He hears this prayer that He decides to lift that affliction. In other words, I think what we're seeing here is that God is disciplining these Christians with affliction in order to uncover the sins they've tried to cover. And the intended reason is so that they'll confess their sins to one another and to pray for one another. The purpose is to heal the spiritual sickness in the body and to make it whole again. I think of Isaiah 1, where God looks upon the hypocrisy of Judah's religious performance. And he asks them, he says, Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound or softened with oil. And then later in the chapter, he implores them. He says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will become like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse to rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's what he's saying here as well. He's seeing the spiritual sickness of the body, and as he disciplines them for their sin, he implores them, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. All you need to do is confess your sins and pray for one another. And you'll note, by the way, this requires the repentance of both the rich and the poor. The rich need to confess their sins, yes, but the poor need to put away their resentment as well and to pray for the restoration of their brothers. The whole purpose of this design is to bring healing to the rifts that have been created in the body because of sin. So what do we do with a passage like this? There's all kinds of questions that we come up with as we come to this conclusion. We might wonder, for instance, is this something that we can expect God to do in the church today? You know, like, is this, is this just like the spiritual gift issue? Was this a type of discipline that took place in the early church, but which doesn't continue over to today? In short, is this practice something that we still need to observe today? And if so, then what kinds of sins might God discipline in this way today? Depending on our answer to those questions, we might also consider how do we know whether or not a particular sickness is a result of sin? Or if there's 
If, or, or, or is it uh, just taking place just because? Again, we've noted that not every kind of sickness is a result of sin, so how can we tell the difference? How can we tell the difference between a disciplinary affliction and one that comes merely to glorify God? In short, how can we tell that we might need to repent of our healing? Or for our healing? And you know what's interesting, I think, about this passage? It would seem as if James doesn't entirely answer that question. There's, this is where the conditional statement at the beginning of verse 15 is so intriguing. He says, verse 15, And if he has committed sins, he will be healed. Are you catching the implication of that? I don't think the implication there is that God will heal all types of diseases. And then as an extension of that statement, James is saying, and oh, by the way, he'll also forgive your sins if you've happened to sin. Because I'm pretty certain the entire context of this passage indicates that James is addressing a disciplinary illness that has arisen by the performance of some sin specifically. He's not referring to every kind of sickness but only to the kind that has been inflicted as a disciplinary action from God. I say that because, again, verse 16, he says, Therefore confess to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So I think all the illness that he has in view here is as a result of sin. So what's the implication of this? If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Well, I believe the implication is that sometimes a brother will confess their sins and ask for prayer, and after that they won't get better. And guess what we should conclude then? Does it, does it mean that the promise of God has failed? No, it means that God wasn't disciplining that brother for their sin. The disease wasn't a result of their sin, because again, not all sickness comes as a result of sin. So in this instance, the disease is merely occurring to glorify God. In other words, not even James' readers could entirely know whether or not their sickness was a result of their sin or whether it was simply the kind of sickness that people are going to normally get from time to time as they live in a fallen world. The point, brothers and sisters, isn't to necessarily know what the root cause of the sickness is, but to at least realize that there's a possibility that it could be coming from God as a consequence of their rebellion and pride. So then, what should you do in light of what we're seeing here today? What should you take away from this passage? I think it can be summarized in two points. Number one, fear God. Fear God. Unfortunately, I think the consequence of efforts to preserve passages like these from the types of abuses that we find so often in the charismatic church is that very often it results in a kind of Christian deism. Deism, if you're not aware, refers to the belief that there is a God, but that He doesn't interact with the creation in any meaningful way. He's much akin to a watchmaker who creates a watch, winds it, and then walks away to let it run on its own accord. That's almost how some cessationists act. As if God no longer interacts with His creation in a meaningful way. They're functional deists. Well, the consequence of that position is it leads many Christians to no longer respect the disciplinary correction of God since in their mind God no longer interacts with the world in this way. And whatever this passage has to say about whether or not God will make us physically ill for our sin, I most definitely don't think the Scripture ever leads us to come away with that conclusion. God does still interact with the world and He will still discipline His people. And so if you are wise, you perhaps would tremble at the thought that God knows your sin. 
Again, I don't think that's necessarily the cause of these brothers' sickness. I don't think this is merely a psychosomatic sickness caused by their fear of God. But all the same, that would be a very appropriate response to the knowledge that God does discipline His people. Unfortunately, I think some of our theological positions sometimes remove that very appropriate kind of fear from the church. And I believe it's quite possible that some brothers and sisters are suffering because of it. So that's the first response I think we should take away from this passage. Fear God. And then number two, confess your sins to one another. Confess your sins to one another. People will sometimes come to me and say things like, you know, sometimes when I'm sitting in a restaurant, I get this urge to go and start a conversation with someone, you know, strangers sitting across the room. I get this urge to go and share the gospel with them. And, I, and I'm wondering, is that the Holy Spirit? And do you know what I tell them? I say, why does it matter? <laughs> right? The point is, we know we're supposed to go share the gospel. So why does it matter if the Holy Spirit is directing them specifically in that moment or not? Just share the gospel. And that's the same sort of response that I'd have if someone were to ask me today, am I being afflicted with this disease or sickness or whatever because of some sin I've committed? I'd tell them, well, it depends. Do you have any unconfessed sin? And if they say no, well, then the answer would clearly be no. But if the answer is yes, then I'd say, well, either way, you should probably confess it. I mean, I'm not going to say that they are sick because of their sin, but I'm not going to say they aren't either. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Because you don't ultimately need to know whether the affliction is a direct result of some sin you've committed since you do already know that you, that you have unconfessed sin and God wants you to confess it. That's really how this passage should read. It isn't there to say you're most definitely going to get sick if you confess your sin, or if if you don't confess your sin. After all, God can sometimes be incredibly patient with His people, but it does leave open that possibility, and it leaves that possibility open in order to encourage us to take our sin seriously and confess it. So I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, do exactly what James prescribes here. Don't try to hide your sin. Instead, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. There's no way that you can go wrong if you do that. That most definitely is the will of the Lord. And with that in mind, I want us to close our time together this morning by praying that God would heal our congregation of any wounds that we may have inflicted upon one another with our sin. Let's pray.